0: Father, we thank you for your word to us, for the opportunity and the privilege of coming together in worship. And we ask now that you'll give us minds that are open to your word as we continue to worship. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. This week's been filled with a ton of press about the uh, leaders in Washington trying to come to some type of solution to the budget problem. If you have um, watched any news broadcasts or read a newspaper or listened to a news broadcast on the radio or opened up a news website, you have seen many stories, I'm sure, about this issue and this struggle that the people in Washington are trying to solve. On Wednesday I opened up the CNN's webpage and I was struck by the the main heading that came on there. The question they asked was who's winning the debt debate. Now what struck me about that was that it it didn't really seem like that ought to be the question we should be asking. It it reminded me of what I think is wrong with Politics and culture, in a sense, that everything is about win or lose. If you want to get ahead, if you want to get your agenda on the table, you have to fight, you have to hold your ground, and you can never give an inch. But the very question, who's winning the debt debate, isn't a question that addresses what's in the best interests of the people, what's in the best interest of the nation, what's in the best interest of the world, It's a question that is really rooted in which party wins, which party gets the power. But you know why that really grabbed me? Because far too often, that kind of mindset is exactly what we experience in the church. I mean, it's often my perspective. I suspect it's probably often yours. And when we're in the middle of it, And when we are so focused on what we believe and what we think is right, fighting seems like the right thing to do because it's worth it. And we discover that the culture has drawn us into this win or lose perspective. And yet really, you you can't really blame it on the culture. I think it has a little something to do with our sinful human nature. I mean, after all, the struggle of human relationships has been going on for a very long time, even among God's people. And Acts 15 is a vivid proof that even the most godly spiritual Christians are susceptible. Paul and Barnabas have been on this amazing trip through Asia Minor, sharing the gospel, seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 13 and 14 records their journey. And it tells us that they haven't been gone all that long when John Mark decides to head back home. John Mark is probably either the cousin of Barnabas, maybe more likely his nephew. But he leaves them and returns home to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why John Mark leaves. There's speculation that maybe he's homesick. Or maybe the circumstances, the opposition, the the persecution that lies before them is a little bit more than he's ready to handle. We don't know exactly why he leaves, but we do know that according to Acts 15, Paul believes that Mark deserts them. And he's not real happy about it. So when Paul and Barnabas make plans for another journey, Barnabas wants to give this young man another chance. But Paul is adamant against it. And the situation becomes so contentious and so divisive and such a big deal that Paul and Barnabas, these two friends who have been through so much together, part ways. And Barnabas takes John Mark and they go southwest to Cyprus and Paul takes Silas and they go northwest into Asia Minor. Now this is a, an astounding decision for them to make because you have to remember that the time when Paul becomes, first becomes a believer, he is one of the primary persecutors of God's people. The Christians are hesitant to believe that he's really a believer. I think they're afraid that he is trying to trick them into ferreting out where all the Christians are so he can persecute them more. None of them want to go near him except one person, Barnabas. Barnabas is the only one willing to risk, uh, to give Paul a chance. And Barnabas disciples Paul and he helps Paul and he teaches Paul. And they have this long history of traveling the world and sharing the gospel and facing all kinds of opposition and seeing God do miraculous things. And now, it's just all shattered to pieces. And you read this you think, wow, if that could happen to them, it can surely happen to us. And we're right. The threat is always there. And it's important for us to think through this. It's important for us to understand that right up front, that Christians are going to disagree sometimes because we're all human. It's significant, I think, that Luke doesn't sweep this very human, embarrassing event under the rug. He doesn't act like, well, it was, it was the call of God for them to go different ways. He doesn't act like, well, that was just a plan from the beginning. He's very honest they have a difference of opinion about mark they they get angry with each other some words are said tempers flare they go their separate ways and anyone who says that the bible isn't honest and isn't about real life obviously hasn't read this because in the church things get messy because we're all humans and i know we don't necessarily like it but it's true The church doesn't always get along. And when we remember that the New Testament is very clear, that there is no way we can really have any idea of who we are as Christians without the church, then whether we like it or not, we are in this thing together. And then the question becomes not how, how does something like this happen, but what, what can we do about it? What should we do about it? I think it's important to honestly admit that the differences of opinion among us tend to be relational rather than theological. Now, there are exceptions to that. Martin Luther's dissension was theological. John Wesley's dissension was theological. We would like, we we hope, we like to think that Luther, Lee, Orange, Scott's dissension that initiated the Wesleyan Church was theological. But let's be honest even when we want to believe differently about ourselves, most of the disagreements that take place in the church are far more relational than theological. It's interesting to me that the bulk of Acts 15 tells about the church in Jerusalem trying to deal with a very precarious and difficult theological issue. And when you get to the end of that section, just, at the end, just before the part that we read... We read that they come to this beautiful compromise. And then, Paul and Barnabas, who have a relational disagreement, end up going different directions. N.T. Wright makes an interesting observation. He asks whether there was anything that could have been done to prevent this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And, And he says, perhaps both of them are right, and that means that they just have to agree to disagree, and that's his point, But he says, just because two people are sure they're right and their opinions appear to be different, there is no automatic need for them to get steamed up with each other. If they do, the steam doesn't come from the disagreement itself, but often from the personal factors, pride, arrogance, fear of being dominated, fear of losing face. And we ought to look at this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and ask ourselves about why we might be involved in something similar. Why is this so important to me? Why am I willing to go to war over this? What's really driving my attitude? At the same time to understand that it's often our experiences, it's our training, it's our personality differences that are at the heart of our dissension. I think personality differences often cause us to interpret events and to discover solutions in different ways. I think both Paul and Barnabas are wrong and Paul and Barnabas are both right. Barnabas wants to give Mark a second chance, but Paul realizes that if he's going to travel into the boiling waters of potential persecution as he founds the church, he needs to make sure that he is traveling with people that he can count on. And you can see both sides of that. In the language of Myers-Briggs personality typing, Paul makes a value decision. Barnabas makes a person-oriented decision. Paul's decision is based on what seems best for the ministry. Barnabas' decision is based on what seems best for this young man. Paul's decision seems to be motivated by a commitment to truth and, and to the most prolific means of sharing the truth. And Barnabas' decision seems to be motivated by a commitment to grace and to the restoration of this young man. I was thinking about, as I was thinking about this, I I, I thought, I I want to do a little survey this morning. As we read this story, and as you're even thinking about these personality traits, I want to ask you, which of these two people do you sort of feel an affinity toward? If you were to say, which one do you think was right? Which one sort of resonates with you? Which would it be? How many think Paul? All right. How about Barnabas? Okay. Okay. Now, we're looking at each other and we're thinking, how in the world could they think that? What is wrong with them? It's so obvious, right? Most of of the disagreements and the differences of opinion that we struggle with in the church often are related to our different personality types. But instead of fighting that, we work together and we connect with each other. And we realize that when all of our types are put together, even our different ways of seeing things, then we begin to create a church that is well-rounded and whole instead of a church that is myopic and narrow. We realize that our differences actually make us stronger and better and more aware than we would be without them. But it's not easy to see things like that In fact, it's much more difficult to try and work out our relational problems than not. But we have to come to realize that most of the time, growth and maturity are typically both born and nourished in the challenges of relationship. In his insightful book, Introverts in the Church, Adam McHugh says that though he would rather exist away from the noise and the urgency of other people... He cannot escape the fact that growth invariably involves the messiness of genuine human contact and the struggles of intimacy. He says, I've yet to find a mature believer either in this age or in the ages, previous ages of the church who says you can grow into the full stature of Christ without bumping up against brothers and sisters on a regular basis. When I think about the vision of God in this event. I see the Lord of the church who doesn't make us all the same but creates the church and puts the church into this world in order to show the world how a diverse group of people can honestly and openly through the grace of God work things out and exist together in a positive way. I don't see a God who expects us to be perfect, nor a God who thinks that we will never hurt each other or disappoint each other or disagree with each other. I don't see a God who expects us to be superhuman. I do, however, see a God who wants to see our relationships in a different light than how the rest of the world operates. And sometimes the best solution is to agree to disagree. Sometimes the best solution is to go our separate ways, but always and only as a very, very, very last resort. Because I see a God who wants us to be so filled with His Spirit, individually and corporately, and filled with His presence, that when we disagree and when we hurt each other and when we disappoint each other, Eventually, we care so much about each other that we humble ourselves and we confess our faults to each other and we forgive each other and we start all over again with each other. And we let God take even our struggles and even our disappointments and even our disagreements and show what he can do with people who are committed to him and to each other. I think when you boil it all down, our attitude about our differences of opinion is more important than our opinion. Our attitude about our differences of opinion is more important than our opinion. And I think it's one of the difficult truths for us to grasp and accept. And it doesn't mean that our opinions are unimportant. And it's not that the end result of ministry and of life is exclusive of results and accomplishments. But when I read the scriptures, I find that the real test of a life well lived is not what we've accomplished. It's not where we've been or how many people we may have helped to come to faith through our witness. And it's not the size or the success of what we do. In the end, it's about relationships. And no matter how wonderful the end, the means never justifies it. And this means that the journey and the process of walking with Christ is really the point. We're not working towards something, we're living something. So instead of our goal being, I get my agenda... Or to convince others that I'm right, my goal is to love people in such a way that we build solid relationships, even if we don't agree. And I think that there is no more important and profound means to this end than listening to each other. I think listening is one of the greatest, maybe the greatest gift that we can give another human being. We listen by giving the other person the freedom to express their thoughts and opinions. But actually, it's more than that. When we listen, we value their thoughts and opinions. We treat their opinions and their thoughts with respect, even when we disagree with them. And I know we're thinking to ourselves, well, why should I do that? I mean, they're wrong. They, they, they need to be told that they're wrong. They need to know that, that we're right. Probably so do you think anyone's going to hear that or be open to that if they feel insignificant to us? If they feel disrespected by us, if our actions make it very clear that only our opinion matters. Eugene Peterson once wrote, if we want to embrace a truly spirit-formed church, we have to embrace the messy conditions, the complexity of relationships, both interpersonal and Trinitarian, The many levels of maturity and immaturity and the ever-present vulnerability of everyone to sin out of which the church is being formed. The question is not, maybe, I can't believe, how could this happen? But what are we going to do about it? Back in May of 2005, USA Today ran an article about The 10 hardest things to do in sports. Now, the list included things like cycling the 2,500 miles of the Tour de France. I was surprised. That was like eight. I would have thought that was first. Uh, Or running a marathon. Actually, that probably would have been first, in my opinion. Or returning a tennis serve, traveling 130 miles an hour. Or hitting a golf ball long and straight. Pole vaulting. Driving a race car. But you know what was number one? Number one was hitting a baseball. Now you're thinking, oh, come on, you know, a lot of us grew up hitting baseballs. You know, you play Little League, or you're out in the backyard, or even a wiffle ball, plastic ball, something, you know, we've hit balls. But you've got to remember, they're talking about hitting a major league baseball, where the pitcher throws 95 miles an hour from 60 feet away, which means that a batter has four-tenths of a second to see the ball, figure out where it's going, and hit it. Four-tenths of a second. It's hard. As I was thinking about that, I read something that John Orberg talked about as. As a pastor in the Bay Area, the general manager of the San Francisco Giants asked him to come and do a chapel service. And he said, while you're here, you want to take some batting practice? And he said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, all right, I'll I'll have uh, John Yandel, who is one of our batting practice pitchers, throw some pitches to you in the the net, the cage underneath the stadium. And Orberg said, you know, I I never played a whole lot of baseball, but, you know, I played enough. I I hit the ball. I've I've been around guys, and, and I've played. And so I thought, this will be great. This will be fun, a little professional challenge. And the guy pitching, it's not like he was, uh, profe- you know, a, a major league pitcher. He never even made it to the major leagues. He he just throws batting practice for the guys, uh, you know, the, sort of the slow pitches that gives him a chance to warm up a little bit before the game. So he gets in the batting cage, and and the guy throws the first pitch, and he says, "I didn't even know it was there until it hit the net behind me." <laughs> so he said, "All right, I, you know, I'm ready now." And he throws the next one, and he, and he swings the bat. And he said, the ball hit the net before the bat even got to the plate. So he said, every time he'd throw a pitch, I keep swinging earlier and earlier until he was just in his windup and I started my swing. (laughs) And he said, I actually felt pretty good about myself because I actually hit a few foul balls. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy is firing pitches at me. And I actually fouled off a couple of them. And I felt pretty good about it. And then the guy says to him, so, uh, John, he said, you want me to put a, zi- a little zip on one of them? <laughs> he was just throwing lob pitches to me. He wasn't even trying. And he said, he threw one. He said, I didn't even see it. I, I-, I never even knew it was there until, you know, it hit the net. And I thought, okay, I'm done. He said, it's hard. It's hard to hit a ball. And afterwards, the guy sent a scouting report to the general manager. John Ortberg throws right, bats right. Took, batting pre- took about 20 minutes of batting practice. As a baseball player, John makes a good pastor. <laughs> it's hard. But it got me thinking, what's the hardest thing about the church? Preaching? Teaching? Staying connected to our vision, recruiting volunteers, finances, worship. Uh, the, The most difficult challenge in the church is not ministry or outreach or vision or worship. It's us. It's you and me. It's all of us. And the struggles that come with very real, very common conflicts and pain that we cause each other. You know, you read through the story of Paul and Barnabas and you don't get any real indication of how exactly things turn out for them. On the one hand, it's obvious that God brings some good out of it. The, the missionary focus has doubled and the church has expanded. And, and the good thing is that eventually Paul and Mark reconcile to the point that in one of his last letters, Paul writes to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. But on the other hand, it intrigues me that from this point on, we never again hear of Barnabas. And you, you just wonder. You know, we're going to have disagreements. It's human nature. It's a part of being in relationship with each other. It's the nature of our different personalities and our different experiences. But what's our attitude in the middle of it? What's our priority? What drives us? Is it us or is it Christ? Is it our desire to be right or is it the unity of God's people? Is it our need to be the one whose opinion is most important or is it our desire to love each other? As we love Christ, this is why we're coming to the Lord's table today. This table is is God's great gift to us that breaks down barriers and and walls and, and dissension. Because when we see this table clearly, we can't help but see that it's all about Jesus. It's not about our agenda, it's about Him. It's not about our opinion, it's about him. It's not about how we might be different or how we might disagree. It's about how we're united in him. At this table, it's all about Jesus. And the cross brings reconciliation to our broken and divided lives between us and him and between us and each other. We'll never agree about everything. But this table invites us, calls us to commit ourselves to the grace of Christ, to love and to listen and to accept each other because Christ has done no less for each of us. As we prepare to come to the table, I want to invite you to stand and we're going to recite together the Nicene Creed. This creed that reminds us that our focus as God's children is primarily on what is central instead of what is peripheral. Let us declare our faith in the words of this historic affirmation We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord. Jesus Christ, excuse me, I think we have some missing there, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, our God, creator and sovereign of the universe, You loved the world so much you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. He suffered and died for the sin of the world. You raised him from the dead that we too might have new life. He ascended to be with you in glory and according to his promise, is with us always. As we remember all of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ... We ask you to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us. Father, we pray that you will send the power of your Holy Spirit upon us and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ, that we may be one body in him, cleansed by his blood that we will faithfully serve him in the world and look forward to his coming in final victory through him with him, in him in the unity of the Holy Spirit all honor and glory is yours almighty God now and forever amen